Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for March 16th, 2018. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined today by Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Slash Film Writer Chris Evangelista. Hello. So we are going to uh, forget the original introduction. Apparently, the people have spoken, and people don't care about us telling you what we're going to talk about. So let's just go ahead and start talking about things, guys. Uh, let's kick it off with... The trailer for Avengers Infinity War, the most recent trailer, debuted earlier this morning. Um, Chris, let's go to you. What did you think about this one? Uh, it's all right. I'm, I, I feel like I feel like I'm Ebenezer Scrooge, and this trailer is Christmas, and I just don't really get it. I mean, I like these movies. I have no problem with these movies, but this trailer, I don't know. I saw everyone like freaking out about it on on Twitter, and I just watched it with you know. Like, eh, that looks fine. I mean, nothing looks nothing looks real to me in this movie. Everything looks CGI and uh, you know, really brightly lit. There's, It just doesn't look, you know, that exciting to me. But, you know, I'll be there opening day. I will gladly see it. But I'm, I'm the outlier here in that I'm not as blown away by this as seemingly everyone else. Okay, so Brad, are you as blown away as everyone else? I wouldn't say that I'm blown away, but I'm, I'm definitely just as excited as I was before this. I mean, you know, the excitement's already really high for this movie, and it, it does have a lot to live up to, but um, I don't know. There's there's a lot of cool moments here. I don't, I don't think the trailer is necessarily cut in a way that makes it all that exciting um, or engaging, but there are cool moments to be seen here, and I think it's, it's really it's just the more about the prospect of this movie, I think, that is the most exciting, because we're getting the Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy together for the first time. We're seeing the culmination of all the Infinity Stone stuff finally come together. This is supposed to be the Avengers' biggest threat. And so I think it really it's more about like the idea of what this movie represents than what is shown here in the trailer. You know, um, I feel like they're holding back a lot of the best stuff because they know that this is going to be huge. Um, but we get tastes of the cool stuff, you know. Like, with, uh, I like the interaction between... Star Lord and Tony Stark, and I kind of like Spider Man's reaction between them, just <laughs> looking back and forth, you know. Yeah. Um, and and that, of course, there's great action beats too. So, 
yeah i uh also was sort of like oh yeah this is fine um i i was not uh one of those aforementioned people who were freaking out on twitter or anything about it but um yeah i mean you know i'm i'm as i've always been i continue to be worried about the prospect of so many characters being in one movie together and uh the idea that the audience has built up familiarity with these people and relationships with these people over many years and now all of them are being crammed into one movie it just i can't get past the fact that each character is only going to have x number of minutes of screen time uh if everybody gets an equal amount you know which is probably unlikely so i don't know I, i'm hoping that they're going to be able to find some compelling way to to make this whole thing work but I think uh, I can't trust a trailer in this one. I think we just have to see the movie to see how the whole thing uh, comes together. But um, speaking about the the trailer, Brad, I know you dove really deep into this thing and did one of our patented trailer breakdowns on the site. Uh, was there anything that you noticed that may have um, escaped the attention of people on first watch? Um, yeah, so there's definitely some cool details to notice here. Um, one of the quick shots that I thought was interesting happens uh, in Wakanda, and it's a quick shot of Shuri, who is Black Panther's sister. Um, as we know, Captain America brings Vision to Wakanda in order to help, so they can help protect him from Thanos, because Vision was brought to life with the power of the Mind Stone, the Yellow Infinity Stone, and it's residing on his head, and it's very likely that he would not survive without it if Thanos were to pluck it from his head. And there's a quick shot of Shuri holding up a hologram of Vision's head as he lays on one of their medical bays. And it seems like Shuri might be tasked with trying to figure out how to remove the Infinity Stone from Vision without killing him. So that'll be interesting to see if they, uh, she can actually pull that off. That seems like some uh, pretty high-level stuff, and that's uh, we're pretty well aware that she has the capabilities of doing something that impressive. Um, along with that, there's also an interesting shot that shows um, what appears to be the Guardians of the Galaxy going back to Nowhere. Uh, if you don't remember, Nowhere is where the Collector's Collection resides. It's in that, uh, that location that looks like um, a giant skull that has been uh, where the brain matter is being removed from it and used and sold for various things. Mm -hmm. um, it looks like it's it's a dark shot, but they're and they're walking off of their new ship that they have. But you can see one of those little industrial vehicles that Rocket Raccoon flew around in in the original Guardians of the Galaxy. And the, my best guess as to what they're doing there is you might remember that even though the Guardians brought uh, the purple power um, power stone to the Collector, uh, before that the Warriors Three brought the Ether, which was which is the Reality Stone, the Red Infinity Stone. To, for safekeeping in the collector's collection. So it's very likely that they are gone to see if they can track it down there, and maybe it's still there somewhere amongst the, the rubble after that explosion happened with the Power Stone on the first one. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how, how that pans out. Um, there's other, plenty of other cool details, too. Um, interesting. There's a, I think my favorite thing that I think it will be most intriguing is there appears to be a flashback sequence involving Thanos and a tiny Gamora. There's a quick shot of a tiny green hand grabbing Thanos' big purple hand, mm -hmm. and he's walking down this uh, kind of like city street. It looks like Asgard, but I imagine that it's probably Gamora's homeworld, and this is where she's taken from her family because Thanos 
took her from his real father, her real father, and turned her into uh, her his adoptive daughter, and trained her to become this weapon. Because mm-hmm. um, it looks like there's destruction happening on that world too. So maybe he came and took over this, you know, uh, place, and then and took Gamora away from her family. So that should be interesting to see a, a backstory about Gamora and likely Nebula too, as to how they grew up with Thanos, and it might give us an idea as to who Thanos is as a character. Cool. Uh, one thing that is not in this trailer for Avengers Infinity War is Hawkeye. Uh, Chris, do you know why Hawkeye is uh, MIA from this trailer? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, like you said, Hawkeye is not in the trailer. He's not on the poster either that was released today that features approximately 8,000 characters, but not him. Uh, our own Peter Serretta went to the Infinity War set and he talked to the, uh, the Russo brothers, the directors, and they provided a little insight about where Hawkeye is. Uh, Joe Russo said, uh, coming out of Civil War, he's in the same position that Cap and Falcon are at at the end of the movie. Coming into this movie, characters on Cap's side, com- Cap's side coming out of the Civil War, some made certain decisions and others made other decisions that led to different paths in them dealing with oversight in this movie in a different way. So Hawkeye's on his own journey in this movie, end quote. So he'll be in the film. He's just, they're keeping him uh, out of the marketing for some uh, specific reason, which I'm sure will become much more apparent when we all see the film. Do you have any theories about where Hawkeye could be? I don't know. Maybe he's, you know, he's at his farm chilling with, uh, his wife, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I guess we'll find out sooner rather than later. I, I, I have a feeling even before the film comes out, something's going to leak as tends to be the nature of, of spoilers like this. Someone's mm-hmm. going to figure it out sooner rather than later. Yeah, Brad, do you have any theories about Hawkeye? I think he, he's looking for those chems that he never got from the Born Legacy. <laughs> oh, man, poor Jeremy Renner. Um, okay, so let's move on to the next uh, topic of discussion, and that is Ava DuVernay is going to be directing a movie called The New Gods for DC Films. So um, Ava, who most recently directed A Wrinkle in Time, um, she actually flirted with Marvel for a little bit about the potential of directing Black Panther before ultimately deciding that she probably wouldn't have the creative control that she wanted on that movie. So she ended up passing on that project. And now she has sort of uh, gone across the aisle and she's going to be working with Warner Brothers in DC uh, to direct an adaptation of The New Gods, which is based on a comic created by Jack Kirby. And um, in terms of what that is actually about, I asked uh, our own Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall, about this uh, because I know he's like a big comics guy and he gave me a a pretty brief rundown, but I thought it was kind of funny and and I'll just read it to you guys now. He said, essentially, Jack Kirby came to DC after years at Marvel and was given free reign to do whatever he wanted. The result, an entire corner of the cosmic DC universe that he could build from the ground up. And that name is literal. These are the actual new gods of the universe, powerful beings with ambitions and hopes and schemes and takes that are downright Greek myth in their tone and presentation. It's no-holds-barred insanity from a master artist allowed to swing for the fences. That's why it's so hard to explain. There's no real hook here beyond Kirby went nuts and DC published it. Every character in Nook and Cranny is undiluted crazy sauce. So uh, I thought that was a pretty good recap of, of what this movie is going to be about. It's, I mean, to put it in very simple terms, it's essentially it has the potential to be DC's version of Guardians of the Galaxy. It's, it's a very um, space cosmic-y kind of story. Um, the One of the characters that uh, Kirby created for this comic was Darkseid, who is the 
I guess it's the DC universe's equivalent of Thanos, basically this, this big, bad alien creature that uh, wreaks havoc throughout the universe. And even though Darkseid was teased briefly in Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice, it appears that this story is not going to take place in the traditional uh, DC films timeline that movies like Man of Steel and Wonder Woman and Justice League take place in. Um, According to Deadline, uh, Ava DuVernay is closing a deal with Warner Brothers and DC to direct this film. Um, it's going to have a similar budget to A Wrinkle in Time, which is like around $100 million, maybe more. And currently, quote, there is no connection to the studio's other DC worlds. So to me, it sounds like this is probably going to be in, uh, it's going to sit alongside the Joker origin movie uh, as one of those projects that is um, under Warner Brothers yet to be announced production banner that they're i guess they're like splitting dc movies into two kind of universes where one is like the traditional um trackable timeline and the other is more like one-offs that don't necessarily have to be involved and, and cross over with the other movies that exist in that world so um yeah this sounds like it's going to be the latter even though there is a that dark side connection there that seems like maybe they would want to put that in in the traditional continuity but i don't know um what do you guys think about the idea of ava duvernay directing a movie that's essentially like a huge space cosmic epic like this for dc uh chris what do you think uh i'm excited about it. i i have not seen wrinkle in time yet um but i'm excited for pretty much anything uh she does as a director i'm i and this just sounds like a really weird sort of project. So uh, that alone just has my interest. I'm very curious to see what she does with it. Yeah, Brad, what do you think? Um, I don't really know anything about New Gods. And it sounds like an interesting premise. Um, I think I'm more interested in the fact that Ava DuVernay wanted to go over to Warner Brothers and do a DC movie instead of playing in Marvel sandbox. But mm-hmm. um, especially after making a Disney movie. But yeah, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know. You know, it's, uh, I'll, I'll reserve my judgment until we see something from it, since I'm not too familiar with it and don't really have any expectations. Yeah, I thought, um, you know, I wasn't crazy about A Wrinkle in Time, but I thought um, some of the coolest parts of that movie were like involved the spacey kind of um, hard sci-fi elements of it. So hopefully, she's able to sort of translate those qualities over into this big budget uh, <laughs> piece of chaos that she's working on for DC. So, um, and it's also cool that DC is is embracing female filmmakers. I mean, you've got Patty Jenkins, who's working on Wonder Woman 2, uh, and now Ava DuVernay, so that's a, that's a big deal for them. Um, Chris, what do we know about a reboot of Clarissa Explains It All? How's that for a transition between those two projects? <laughs> uh, yeah, so Clarissa Explains It All was a, uh, a 90s sitcom on Nickelodeon. It was one of their first sitcoms, and... Uh, the Nickelodeon is now planning a reboot where uh, Melissa Joan Hart will return, and uh, she, you know, obviously she's an adult now, and she'll have a, a child of her own. So it sort of sounds like what Netflix did with their their Full House reboot, uh, where you know the kids on that show were now grown up with kids of their own. So that that's what uh, pretty much all we know for now. They're just developing developing it currently for Nickelodeon. So we know that Melissa Joan Hart is like is attached that she like signed on for this in the event that it gets picked up or is it just sort of like uh, more nebulous than that at this point? Uh, it's basically right now, everyone's still in talks, but if it happens, she's likely going to return. Okay. Um, I, 
watched a little bit of Clarissa Explains It All growing up. I, I know enough to remember, um, Brad, I think you were referring to this in our Slack channel earlier, that every time her neighbor, I think, or friend Sam came would come over, he like slapped a, a ladder up against her second story window and, and the same guitar riff would play over and over again every time that happened. Um, so, but And I remember that she had a really annoying younger brother. I think his name was Ferguson. And that's essentially... Mike, the extent of my knowledge about Clarissa explains it all. Brad, did you watch the show when you were growing up? I did actually. Um, I it was I I've seen a lot of it, but um, much like I th- I think uh, like I think Chris said in his article, I don't I couldn't really tell you any of the stories from those episodes, uh, like I could with you know like a Nicktoon like Doug or Rugrats. So I I remember the basics of it. I remember the characters and you know like the dynamic there was between. Clarissa and her parents and her brother Ferguson and whatnot, but yeah, I don't remember anything specific about it. Um, yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how, if they can make this work as like a, a series that comes back. There's obviously plenty of nostalgic, uh, you know, 30-somethings who are probably interested in seeing what happened with this show from the uh, from the 90s in today's you know, society, I guess. How many people, though, do you think uh, among our age group or age bracket or demographic or whatever, do you think are actually going to tune into a Nickelodeon show, though? I mean, like, I I wonder how much of the... I'm sure the numbers exist out there somewhere, but for, like, Girl Meets World, for example, like, how many of the people who watched Boy Meets World when it was on the air actually tuned in regularly to see Girl Meets World? Or is it just a name brand thing that maybe, like, the the older, you know, like us, like our, the parents could, uh, offer this up as a suggestion to their kids or something, you know, like, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think it'll, it'll probably be something where the adults maybe tune in for the first, first few episodes, uh, maybe with their kids and then like kind of let their kids go out and be like, all right, this, this is yours now. Yeah. Um, personally, I actually stuck around and watched Girl Meets World just because I was interested in seeing if the show would capture what the original Boy Meets World was because for as as goofy as you could say it was for being an ABC sitcom, it tackled a lot of, of storylines that most other sitcoms wouldn't. There was a, a lot of very genuine and authentic ideas that came into thing, uh, especially because like um, Corey's friend Sean, played by Ryder Strong, was a kid who was kind of from the wrong side of the tracks. He was um around middle class maybe even less so you might you might consider him being being a little bit poor and they they tackle a lot of those issues and like his dad essentially uh, uh, abandoned his family and there was there's a lot of stuff about broken families and all these different issues that most shows that were on ABC or other networks at the time didn't tackle mm-hmm. and so I wanted to see if Romeo's world did that it didn't as well even tried because of the Disney show so it was like who cheesy too um i don't know maybe nickelodeon uh for lack of a better word has some guts to do something like that (laughs) nice yeah yeah we'll see uh i (laughs) i mean i'm curious just from a like a morbid curiosity standpoint of this i i know it's not anything i'm gonna regularly watch but um yeah i'm just i'm interested to see if the younger crowd will give a crap about a Clarissa Explains It All reboot. But uh, speaking of nostalgia, let's talk a little bit about Ready Player One. Uh, I know, uh, Brad, you're really looking forward to this movie. Uh, Chris, are you looking forward to this? I know it's a Spielberg movie and you're a big Spielberg fan, but um, this one, I, I, I'm not sure where you fall on this one before you've actually seen it. Let's just say if 
if Steven Spielberg weren't directing this, I would probably never go see it. But because it's him, I'm I like I have to see it. But okay. I'm 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 a little nervous about it. So. Okay. So yeah, one of the things that I was nervous about, I, I saw the movie um, for the right before the press junket, so I think it was earlier this week, and um, I don't know if I'm allowed to really talk too much about it. So I'll save those general thoughts. But one of the things that I'll I'll say is I was um, very worried because I, I read the book and I was worried that all, a lot of the references, the pop culture references would essentially sink the movie, like the, that the movie would not be able to support the weight of all of these ridiculous uh, random references that, that come through. But I think Spielberg does a pretty good job. Um, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to come up with a way that's diplomatic about saying this, but there are definitely a ton of references in the movie, but they're not nearly as annoying as they could be. Um, and they're not as annoying as, frankly, I found them to be in the book because it's a lot different just seeing some little character fly by really quickly on the screen than reading the author, you know, sort of smugly describe things in, in excruciating detail in the pages of a book. So I think uh, fans who are a little bit worried about that um, can largely put your, your worries to rest. Um, but one of the, you know, we were talking about the movie has a, a bunch of references in it, but one of the uh, references that was actually in an original version of the script that Spielberg ended up cutting out was to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So Zach Penn, who is one of the screenwriters, mentioned at the press conference that uh, that he wouldn't let the writers put in the mothership from Close Encounters. And Spielberg said, there comes a point where I would have had to just refer to somebody else who liked my movies and not make a movie about my movies. I let a couple of little iconic characters in from my films, especially the DeLorean, which come, which came from the book directly. But otherwise, there were a lot of things that we could have put in, but didn't. And Penn said, oh yeah, and if I could just say, because it'll never see the screen, I had this joke about parking the mothership and how difficult it would be. I don't blame Stevens for for cutting it. Uh, I didn't know Steven was going to be directing the movie when I wrote it. So um, yeah, I thought that was interesting that that uh, Spielberg is essentially cutting back on, he's, he's trying to exercise some amount of restraint over uh, the references that made it into the movie. But he also mentioned that there was one uh, franchise that he could not secure the rights to, and it was Star Wars. And I thought that was a little weird. So um, somebody asked him how difficult it was for him to wrangle all the rights to all these different various pop culture properties. And he said, is Christy Makosko up here? Christy spent three years with all of the Warner Brothers legal people getting the rights to all of these properties, and we couldn't get all of them. We couldn't get any Star Wars rights. Very hard. They wouldn't give up the Star Wars rights. And then Ben Mendelsohn chimed in and said, you could have called me on that one, Stephen, and everybody cracked up. So uh, obviously he was in Rogue One, so <laughs> theoretically he would have some sort of connection there. But the, the thing that I found interesting about this was that Spielberg could not get the rights to Star Wars, but he goes way back with Kathleen Kennedy, who is the the overlord over at uh, Lucasfilm. And Kennedy was like his assistant and ended up producing a ton of movies with him going all the way back to E.T. So you would think that there would be enough of a friendly relationship there that she could like pull a few strings and get, <laughs> get whatever he wanted to happen here. And especially, I, I think Spielberg was like on the short list to direct episode seven at one point. Um, and yeah, th this just didn't happen. And also I found it strange that like, this is a Warner Brothers movie. Another Warner Brothers movie from a few years ago, the Lego movie actually managed to get, you know, that's another film that's full of tons of pop culture references. And that one managed to get the Millennium Falcon, Han Solo, C-3PO, Lando Calrissian, and Chewbacca all in that movie. But for some reason, Spielberg's film uh, was not 
deemed worthy enough to do that. I don't I don't really know what's going on behind the scenes there, but I just thought that was fascinating. Brad, do you have any uh, any thoughts about this? Um, I feel like I'm uh, when I see the movie, which because I haven't yet. Um, I feel like I I might end up being a little disappointed that Spielberg wasn't a little more um, generous about referencing his own movies. I, I understand his humility about not wanting to um, because of the experience he had with referencing his own movies in 1941, and just because he's he's just that kind of guy. You know, he's not necessarily willing to show off his old stuff to be like, hey, remember, remember this guy? Um, but. Yeah, I, I do find it surprising that he couldn't get Star Wars. I wonder if that was more of a studio thing than a, like a, a not having access to the right people kind of thing. I wonder if maybe Disney was a little bit stingier about stuff appearing in this kind of environment because having Lego versions of those characters appear in the Le- the Lego movie is a little bit different than having what would basically be photorealistic versions of certain ships items, characters, what have you right. um, in you know the world of the Oasis. So I can get that, uh, I understand why that would be difficult, but that, it is kind of disappointing that they couldn't get some of those references just for uh, for shits and giggles. Yeah, and I think I think the Lego movie came out in 2014, and that was before The Force Awakens came out, so maybe that had something to do with, do with it as well. Um, the idea that... These... Actually, yeah. Well, you know what? Since the Lego movie would have been in development long before it came out in 2014, I bet you that maybe that was a done deal before Disney even bought Lucasfilm. Oh, yeah, that's true, because that was in 2012, and... A lot of these animated movies take, yeah, like three or four years or something um, sometimes yeah. to get up and running. So, yeah, that, that could be. Um, all right. So let's move on to our next item. And that is a slasher movie is coming to Netflix, uh, a brand new one. Chris, what do we know about this one? Uh, yeah. So Sean Levy, who is the producer of Stranger Things and uh, James Wan, who directed The Conjuring and Insidious and also Furious 7 and Aquaman. Uh, they're teaming up to adapt this uh, a novel by Stephanie Perkins called There's Someone Inside Your House, which is described as a coming-of-age slasher film, which is a combination I don't think we've really ever seen before. So that's that instantly has my uh, curiosity there. And um, it's about the, uh, a girl who moves to a small town and people in her town, her, her fellow classmates, start dying in very gruesome ways. So... Uh, it sounds interesting. Um, James Wan, even though he's involved, he's not directing it, but he's helping develop it with Sean Levy. So I'm curious about this. Hopefully it'll turn out well and not like Netflix's uh, The Babysitter, which is another horror movie they made, and it was terrible. So mm. we'll see. Mm. Uh, yeah, Netflix. I mean, I think we wrote earlier this uh, this month that they were they're going to be releasing like 700 pieces of either movies or TV original content this year. Um, so I don't know. They're the odds are sort of against them with that much uh, the, with the sheer amount of content that they're producing. But yeah, I'm hoping this one's good. It, it sort of reminds me that in I guess in vague terms, the concept, the premise reminds me of um, that movie that Joseph Kahn directed, uh, Detention, I think it was. Um, which is also like a slasher movie set in a high school. Brad, did you see that movie? I have not seen it. Okay. Um, what do you think about this one? Have either of you read the book by uh, Stephanie Perkins, by the way? I have not. Nobody. No, I haven't either, but I'll probably pick it up before I watch this whenever it comes out. Okay. Um, yeah, Brad, what do you think about the idea of a, a coming-of-age slasher movie? Um, you know, it sounds kind of creepy (laughs) um i mean i guess you could say that maybe we got a little bit of a coming of age slasher film with rob zombies halloween since he gave michael myers an origin story 
but I don't know. Like when they say coming of, because like for me, coming of age movies are um, charming and you know kind of delightful, and they remind you of growing up and like the trials and tribulations of that. And so like, are we supposed to identify with like a serial killer who is growing up and becoming a serial killer and feel sorry for him? You know, is it going to have the same elements of the coming of age movies that you know we like things like uh boyhood or um i don't know why i'm blanking on coming of age movies because i I, (laughs) I like them so much um but like you know it just seems like a weird blend to me i I feel like it might have a hard time striking that doesn't make you feel weird yeah um actually isn't there a show or movie on netflix that came out pretty recently about like a pair of teenagers who God, I I probably shouldn't have even brought this up because I don't know what I'm talking about. No, you're right. It's I mean that's kind of the same thing. They're they're basically both kind of sociopaths, psychopaths, just just teenagers with these dark tendencies. Um, And one of them is on the verge of basically like becoming a murderer. Uh, It's uh, the end of the fucking world. Oh, that's right. That's Um, right. Okay. And and so so yeah, but like I don't know. That's kind of. I guess that if they're doing something like that, it could work because it's it's dark comedy, um, and it plays up some of those darker aspects for laughs. But I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm not saying it can't work, but it just it just sounds kind of weird to describe it like that. Yeah, and Chris, you mentioned in your article that James Wan is not directing this, right? Yes, that's correct. It doesn't say who is directing it, but he is not going to direct it. And they, I mean, Sean Levy is the guy who is, he's one of the producers of Stranger Things. And I think they sort of name check Stranger Things in one of the descriptions for this, uh, this movie. Is that right? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's apparently has that same uh, nostalgic 80s. And they also reference the 90s sort of slasher t- movie tone mixed with uh, John Hughes is how they're describing it. So, huh. again, I mean, you know, that, that just sounds like the sort of thing, like a producer says in a pitch meeting right sounds good we're like we'll, we'll we'll see if it actually turns out that way yeah definitely all right let's move on to our last item of today and that is uh the star wars the last jedi commentary uh brad you listened to this and actually wrote up uh, an in-depth article about everything we learned from that um i don't want to ask you to rehash that entire thing i want to encourage people to go to the site and check it out we've linked to the article and all these other articles that we've talked about in the show notes for this podcast episode but um can you tell us i don't know maybe your two or three favorite things that you learned from the uh, the last jedi commentary uh yeah um one thing that i thought was pretty cool was uh when they were shooting uh, the the sh- shots of Kylo Ren's smashed helmet on the floor after he throws a, a hissy fit in the elevator on the Star Destroyer. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, the helmet that they when they were shooting it, it was just kind of split in two a little bit, and you could still see its full form. And when, once they had gotten some shots with it, Ryan Johnson said, "You know what? He's like he's like I feel like we need to break it more." And I guess he just went and just smashed the helmet like himself, like just <laughs> just went and just started stomping on it and crushing it. And then that's when they shot and what they ended up using in the movie. So I thought that was that was kind of cool. Nice. Um, for anyone who was kind of disappointed with how why how Kylo Ren kind of lost the helmet and you know basically reneged on what J.J. Abrams had set up for his character, the explanation behind as to why he made this change is pretty is pretty interesting. Um, and you can either read the article to find out about it or just listen to the whole commentary yourself. Um, on top of that, Ryan Johnson has uh, two cameos in this movie. 
Um, you don't ever see his face, but you do see his hand. His hand is actually the one that reaches up to grab Han Solo's golden dice off of uh, from the Millennium Falcon cockpit. It's not Mark Hamill's hand. It is Ryan Johnson's hand. And he also lent his voice to the, the snobby alien that we see on the floating yacht in one of the early shots on Canto Bite. The, it's an alien that kind of looks like he has uh, a tentacle mustache, you know, kind of like a, a snobby sea captain. Do you so know if um, if the reason that he put his hand in there holding up that dice was because Mark Hamill was unavailable to shoot that? Or if that's just something that he did, he mention in the commentary, if that was just like a cool way for him to get himself involved in the movie. <laughs> he didn't say um, necessarily why it was like that, whether it was his he was motivated to do that. But it is an insert shot. So it's probably just one of those things where they didn't necessarily need Mark Hamill to do right. it because it was just a gloved hand that was reaching up for the thing. So anybody really could have done it. Mm -hmm. And so Ryan John was probably he's like, well, I'll do it. And uh, just, you know, cause putting yourself in your own movie, especially a star Wars movie uh, is pretty fun. And then uh, one final cool thing is um, I guess Ryan Johnson brought in Frank Oz to help him in the editing room when he was piecing together the sequence with Luke Skywalker and Yoda. Um, Frank Oz is a director himself. He's done uh, a, couple, a few pretty great movies, and Ryan kind of wanted his input because when you're cutting scenes together with uh, a puppet that was on set, apparently it can be kind of difficult to do it and make things seem natural. And so he wanted kind of Frank Oz's input in the uh, while they were editing, so they could cut around the footage that they had and make it seem, you know, that Yoda never really seemed fake and that it always seemed, you know, just as uh, quote unquote real as he did from Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. That's very cool. Um, Chris, have you uh, had a chance to check out any of the special features on The the Last Jedi yet? Not yet. I'm going to do it soon because I'm going to have a, uh, a review of the Blu-rays, and I'm excited to dig into them. Awesome. All right. Well, you can find that at SlashFilm.com, as well as uh, all more information about all the stories that we talked about on today's show. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features that you can find on the website. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all of the popular podcast apps. Please send your feedback, questions, or concerns, or comments, or anything, really, to peter at SlashFilm.com, and be sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we do mention uh, your email on the air. Uh, also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Spread the word, tell your friends. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys on Monday.